from the National Association of Evangelicals, welcome to today's conversation. Our topic, Caring for the Dying. Host Lee Anderson, NAE President, talks with Bob Solheim, Director of Little Hospice. Today's conversation is brought to you by Bellhaven University, preparing students academically and spiritually to serve Christ Jesus in their careers, in human relationships, and in the world of ideas. Located in Jackson, Mississippi, Bellhaven offers 70 areas of study, including academic majors and concentrations across a full spectrum of disciplines, as well as the new Master of Ministry Leadership Program, the MBA for Ministers. More at bellhaven.edu. And now, let's join in. I'm Leith Anderson, president of the NAE, here today with Bob Solheim. Bob has a diverse resume, court reporter, manager of a life insurance company, president of several personal injury claims companies, director of Northern Technical School of Business. But in 1996, he co-founded Little Hospice in memory of his friend, Newton C. Little, who had died in 1992 in a nursing home. Little Hospice is Minnesota's longest serving residential hospice and is a really special, warm, and welcoming place. So over the last two decades, Bob and the staff of Little Hospice have had a front row seat to the last days of around 4,000 people. As a nearby pastor, I have known the Little Hospice well, and I'm really excited to hear from you, Bob, because of personal relationship and as someone who is really grateful for Little Hospice. So thanks for joining us and being willing to let us learn from you. I'm delighted to be with you this afternoon. So how does it feel to have um, sort of this front row seat to the last days or perhaps weeks of people's lives? Maybe this is an obvious question, but does that get you down or does that make you hopeful? Well, it truly makes one feel humbled and it's a very profound experience and I feel deeply privileged to be invited into the sacred space in someone's life. And does it ever get me down or my staff? Well, sure it can. One example might be of a woman we had a little while ago that had triplet children that were four years of age, and she also had a six-year-old son. And together with her husband and mother, I was in the room with her as she drew her last breath. And her loss or her separation is just immeasurable from these beloved children and husband and mother. And so moments like that uh, certainly are difficult to deal with just from a human standpoint. But it's an also hopeful experience that this beloved child of God has entered the presence of Christ and that she is experiencing joy beyond our imagination. So the hopeful part for me is that when this does happen to somebody who is rooted in their faith and loves Jesus is that they are experiencing what Paul says, I has not seen, ear heard, or the mind of man conceived, what God's prepared for those who love him. So that's about hope. Yeah, and it's hard to just even capture the emotions of what you've just described with words. So what is the philosophy of, of hospice? To sort of give us a primer here on um, you know, what are the basics on hospice? Well, hospice has a very clear philosophy and it's one that accepts death as a natural part of life and seeks to neither hasten or postpone death's natural advance. 
it's a type of caring that helps people truly live until they die without the fear of dying alone in pain or with their symptoms unmanaged. We want to make the patients dying less frightening and more bearable for all concerned in every way possible. So we have an aging population, and of course we all realize that it's not just those who are older who die, but baby boomers, I think something like 10,000 people a day enter that cohort. I read just the other day that there either are now or soon will be more Americans over 45 than under 45, I think for the first time in history. So with this aging population, millions are deciding what they're gonna do about living and dying, what, what later life will be like. So how does living and dying at home uh, compare to living and then dying in a care facility or in the different options of hospice? This is a very important question and a complicated one for our time. But let me try to simplify it with some generalizations. First, most people would prefer to die in their own home rather than anywhere else. A recent Gallup poll uh, just confirmed that. And yet, most people today die either in nursing homes or their equivalents or hospitals. And neither are generally a very good place to die. Nursing homes are important facilities for helping people age in place and deal with those challenging issues that can accompany the aging process. But when it comes time to die, our experience is that they simply are not good places. Unfortunately, their staffs often are insufficient in number. They have inadequate training, low wages. Their institutions experience high turnover. I'm referring to the hospice care portion now, but it all represents a recipe for disaster. And we read the results uh, in the newspapers almost daily because of this. And then hospitals provide an institutional setting that have you know, all the bells, whistles, the sounds and smells of a high-tech environment, tile floors, alarms going off, visiting hours. Again, not a very good environment to die in with family surrounding you. They're just not able to, typically. Hospitals are geared to getting people well, not provide an environment for family and friends to gather around the bedside. So for those who wish to die in their own homes, hospice offers the opportunity, working with licensed programs that provide interdisciplinary teams of people that assist you through this, this journey while remaining in your home. They'll bring a community into you of medical director, chaplain, social worker, a grief support team, um, oh goodness, there'd be nurse, uh, nurse managers and uh, massage therapists, music therapists, and all kinds of people to, to help make this process less frightening and more bearable. But if symptoms in your own home become unmanageable or you have to have a caregiver and if they've given out, there are such a thing as residential hospices that have trained registered nurses on staff and their own interdisciplinary teams of people to help provide end of life care. So I, this is, I'm going on a little bit long with this, but there still are things like smaller assisted living facilities that uh, home care people can come in and visit several times a week to help manage your care in this relative safety. 
and this can happen in nursing homes as well, where an outside hospice program can come and oversee your care as it applies to hospice. But really, the very best solution is to have more community-based residential facilities that can really provide a personalized level of care that's just not available in institutional settings or even in people's homes. All right, so Little Hospice is residential, so people are, are not at home. Um, yes. When someone comes who is uh, under hospice care and, and nearing the end of life, what would be the average length of stay that you would have them at Little Hospice? Last year, we cared for approximately 300 people, and the average length of stay was 6.5 days, and the median was only four days. Now, contrast that with the national uh, statistics, which are in home care programs, the average length of stay is 71 days and the median is 24. And the reason we are so much shorter in uh, duration is that patients only come to us, or almost always, come to us in a crisis setting where things haven't worked out in other settings. And so they come to us for a higher level of care. So I've been there and I've been, uh, I mean, at Little Hospice and I've seen for myself and I, I just wish that we could uh, let people sort of step in the door and uh, experience the setting and, and what you provide. So I, I need for you to give a description to someone so that they can hear your words and imagine what it's like to physically walk into the building. Sure. Well, first of all, you would pull up to a residential facility just in a normal suburban residential neighborhood. You would walk in the door. You, uh, there would be a welcome mat for you. You don't have to ring the bell. You come in, and in our home, it was originally built to be a double bungalow. And so we have two of everything. We have two kitchens, two dining rooms, two living rooms. But the best part is we have eight patient rooms all on one level. The first thing you see when you enter the door is a, a, a big bowl of Hershey chocolate kisses, synonymous with comfort. Chocolate certainly is the age old symbol for that. And then if you go to the right or the left, you enter living rooms that uh, the first thing you see are side tables that have scriptures turned to either Psalm 23 or Psalm 139. It talks about God's complete knowledge and care for our lives. And then in the living rooms, we have large screen TVs, dining rooms. In the kitchen, you will smell cookies baking, bread baking, brownies, things like that. We have 100 volunteers that help come to the home and keep it neat and clean and love to bake and cook. And uh, we have some 30 nurses that are on staff and over 10 interdisciplinary people. In our bedrooms, you'll find state-of-the-art hospital beds with multiple alarms on them to alert us if a patient uh, is attempting to get out of bed when perhaps they're not able to, to navigate very well. Each patient room has a private telephone. Several have uh, little refrigerators. And um, we have, I believe I said, large flat screen TVs in each of these rooms with fabric lift chairs and their own private bathrooms. Um, if we were to go upstairs to an upper level, we have a large meeting room with a library. And in the library, it has every type of end-of-life book for, um, uh, for people 
if your mother, brother, sister, aunt, uncle, whatever your relationship may be, something that would be encouraging, inspiring, and and uh, godly for you to read. And we have sleeping quarters upstairs for families so that they don't have to leave. And these are beautiful bedrooms, uh, again, with televisions and telephones. And we also have a um, a workshop area where people who need to stay in touch with their offices can use our computers and and copy machines and things like that. And when we go downstairs to our lower level, we have a family area that is in many ways like a youth house where we have a big pop machine and uh, ice cream, 15 varieties of ice cream. It's all free. Everybody just helps themselves. We have shuffleboard, ping pong, foosball, a piano, and we have a video machine that uh, couples can play and uh, 61 different video games and lots of things for kids to do. And for me, one of the highlights is a an interfaith chapel where families can go and sit and with the door closed, the stained glass and the beautiful Christian icons and others, it offers them a chance to meditate and, and really connect with God. So this is a time when there are lots of emotions, and I, I wonder, you know, how is, what, what are the common things that people are dealing with? And then there are the practical matters. There's finances and family dynamics and, and all of these. What, what are the typical things or the most common or frequent things that you're having to deal with, or really not that you're having to deal with, but that yeah. uh, patients and family have to deal with? Well, some of the common issues are things we'll hear from the patient many of them have resolved in their minds that that they are going to be dying in the next days or weeks and they've actually come to terms with it but they'll say things like i'm okay with my dying but i'm so worried about my spouse child special friend and they really need reassurance that if you die we're going to be okay we find that they need to deal with guilt particularly many of our brothers and sisters that are Roman Catholics that are feel outside the church because of a divorce uh, or perhaps uh, they, there's been non-church attendance for a while and they they're feel they're in a state of mortal sin and can't participate in the Eucharist. This is very troubling to them. Their anxiety level is at a spiritual high in a negative sense. They suffer terribly emotionally with this as do other Christians who feel that their sins are too great to be forgiven. So we struggle to help people find peace, knowing that when they confess their sins, that God is faithful and just, and that they don't have to worry about anything, that they're beloved children and they're safe. There's a book by a Dr. Ira Bayak, who is a medical doctor and hospital hospice specialist, who wrote a book entitled, The Four Things That Matter Most, referring to the end of life that offers great insight. And those four things are that people need to say, please forgive me, I forgive you, thank you, and I love you. Wow, that's powerful. Let, let me ask you another sort of, um, I don't know if this is a medical or a legal question, but nor do I know the statistics of how many people have living wills, but how many people actually do? And What's your advice on this? Because this is not the time to be dealing with it. You want to deal with this in advance, right? Exactly. 
the uh, statistic, I guess that uh, two thirds of Americans do not have living wills or their equivalent. And that's, that's not surprising. Um, the, the term living will, healthcare directive, advanced directive, uh, those terms all refer to a legal document that would let people state their wishes for end of life medical care. But something even superior to that, in my opinion, is, is called a POLST, which is a physician-ordered life-sustaining treatment order that is actually explained to the patient by their physician and signed by the physician and the uh, patient at the time that they're actually in the doctor's office. And most typically, the POLST is given to people the individuals that have been diagnosed with a terminal illness and have a prognosis of uh, 12 months or less to live. Um, I think the living wills are fine. I think that, that all of these advanced directives and their concepts have their place, but there's a downside to them too. Um, the upside is that you get people talking about what your wishes are and family members are, are brought into the fold as to what they think are, is most important in the minds of the uh, the future beneficiary of the advanced directive. But some people object to these advanced directives on ethical grounds, saying that you're asked to make an advanced decision without complete knowledge. You know, that uh, that argument hinges, I think, on the notion that people are likely to underestimate their desire to have medical intervention should they become ill. When we go from the hypothetical to the actual, it seems like everything changes and most people don't wanna die and they're willing to put up with more intervention than one could imagine in order to live a little longer. And that so many of these uh, documents are put together when you're young and hale and hearty and you're in an attorney's office and you really uh, couldn't imagine what might be happening many, many years down the road when uh, you're in an emergency room and these issues come up. So, um, in any event, I just think that it's something to be circumspect about. You've already talked a little bit about the, the spiritual aspects of dying and family members. So you welcome into the little hospice people who are believers and who are not believers, and you need to respect them, and yet you need to minister to them. And then you have family members who are concerned about the spiritual life of those who are dying. How do you deal with all of that? and sometimes with just three days and difficult circumstances? Well, you know, in the shortest term comment would be that we love them to death. We wanna bring the love of Jesus Christ into every patient room that we can in every moment of sacred space, uh, every, every area of the house that we can. And, and we do that in a number of ways. First of all, we, we respect people's wishes. If they don't want to have any conversation about faith, we, we will honor that. Uh, we'll, we'll let them that uh, uh, let them know that we, we care about them. And if they, if they would like to have any conversation along that line, we're available to do that at any time. But so often there are family members that are deeply concerned that, that somebody hasn't accepted Christ as their savior and they're worried about their salvation. And so we would advise them to simply offer the message of salvation to their loved ones in a non-judgmental, loving way with the assurance that Christ does love them just as they are and let them know you're praying for them and then believe that God loves your loved one even more than you do and that he'll do what's right by them. And if amenable, I will read the, the lost parables from Luke 
to patients because so often it's a matter of them them feeling uh, just away from God and that that he just has no time for them. And if, and if there is a God in their mind, that he probably just doesn't love them. So you're right. We do not have a religious or a spiritual agenda at the hospice. We just we meet people where they're at and then respect their desire to not have a faith discussion if, if that's their decision, even though it breaks our hearts. When people are dying, for the most part, is pain manageable? And then is there a theology to that? How do people, you know, within their Christian faith, uh, understand dealing with pain? How do they talk about it? Yeah, well, that's, that's a good question. The uh, We have more pain management ability than people have pain. That's That's the obvious thing. And when it comes to things like pain, if somebody is hungry, we'd feed them. If they were cold, we'd cover them with a blanket. And certainly if they have pain, we're going to meet their pain to the degree they want us to. By that, I mean some pain is intractable and we may have to provide enough pain management that it compromises their uh, um, their sleepiness or, you know, they have, uh, they're going to be less alert because of the pain management. But we never over medicate it. We certainly try not to, but we medicate to meet whatever pain somebody has. And our belief is that nobody should die in pain today. Nobody, nobody has to. How about the involvement of churches? How do churches connect with Little Hospice? And, um, you know, what are some good examples? Give some advice to churches and pastors of what they can do well to uh, minister to those who are nearing the end of their lives. Sure, I think there's lots of things that churches can do. Our experience at Little Hospice has been that the churches are not very excited about coming alongside of us here. There are a few of the substantial, significant churches by size in the uh, southwest metro area that uh, that we're, we operate out of, uh, just uh, first ring suburb of Minneapolis. But it it's only the larger churches. We have some 31 community churches within just a few miles of uh, the little hospice, but just don't see them uh, showing much interest. And it's always been a, a real disappointment to me. But for those that are interested and uh, and want to work with, uh, with people that are facing uh, end of life issues, there are just so many things that the church, which is like the proverbial sleeping giant, what they can do. Um, and I think it starts with the pastoral staff. Uh, developing a uh, a community of of workers within the church uh, again starting with the with the pastor that would bring maybe a nurse uh, parish nurse alongside of the program and a number of volunteers that are actually trained in how to to deal with death and dying and how to speak to patients and families that are undergoing this life changing experience um, I think conducting awareness programs about hospice services that are available in the community. Uh, you could have a series of, of uh, talks between services that invite hospice chaplains, nurses, social workers, physicians, program directors, bereavement coordinators. My goodness, week after week, you could have different people speaking, grief support leaders. Develop a team of 11th hour sitters, people that are available on a moment's notice to go out to a a family's home and sit at the bedside of somebody that just needs 
somebody to read with them, to hold their hand, to to be a friend. Um, there's uh, there are just so many things that you could do to to help somebody that's dying. But my experience has been that people are afraid to be around dying people. They're afraid they're going to catch what the person might have, or it's um, you know maybe somebody their appearance is very unbecoming because of the disease that's overtaken them and uh it's it's not an easy thing but uh and it, same thing with pastoral visits i don't know if you would want me to continue talking about that but um pastoral calls are probably the mo more significant than a, a physician calling on patients at the little hospice they are so well received so important and we see so so little of it. All right, so let me ask you a question. This is really not a, it's not a trick question, but it may be a difficult question. And that okay. is, what are the unhelpful things? What should family members or churches or pastors, what, what should we not do? Well, the first thing is I would never tell my loved one that I don't know how we'll make it without you. I wouldn't put that burden on them. And I wouldn't talk about the cost of their end of life care. And yet we hear this happening. And I wouldn't tell them that if they don't accept Christ, that they will go to hell. Um, I, you know, there's a lot of a discussion that can be had around that, but I, I've come to believe that that's up to Christ, not us. Salvation's not in my hands, it's in Jesus, and I'm going to leave it to him with prayer. And I wouldn't talk about, we're going to Hawaii next uh, fall or something, or tell them how exhausted you are. These are all things that we hear. Um, and certainly not to say anything that would make them feel like any kind of a burden in any way. I think that's really important. And, you know, when it comes to, well, I've answered your question, I guess. Yeah, simply that you don't add to the burden that's that's already there. Um, no. All right. How, you, you told a story um, when we first started chatting here. Um, about a mother who was dying and, and her children and family and, yeah. and how challenging that is. Um, do you have a story from your ministry at Little Hospice that uh, sometimes maybe you think of when you're discouraged and that lifts you up? Well, I have one that is recent, fairly recent, but it's reflective of our 23 years of, in operation here. And it has to do with with a patient who was in his 40s who had lost his home because of medical bills. And uh, he was married, four kids, and he had to rent and live in an apartment with this significant sized family. And uh, with these four young kids and his wife, they were able to come to the hospice here with him free of charge. His needs were great, but finances were on empty. And so when we were asked if we could take him uh, free of charge, we certainly were pleased to do that. And so his kids stayed with him in the room or up in our upstairs rooms, or they were down in the family rooms and they were playing games and they'd visit with their dad. They'd sit with them, talk with them, hug them. They'd eat delicious home cooked meals uh, and all free of charge to them. And so in this bridge from no longer being able to live even in his apartment now until his death, we could offer him a level of dignity and peace and comfort that's combined with compassionate, skilled nursing care that helps make his death less frightening and far more bearable for his kids, his wife, 
other family members and himself. And we've done this so many times over the years, this kind of thing. I think of a 22-year-old young man from Michigan that was at the University of Minnesota hospitals for receiving an experimental uh, drug treatment for his uh, childhood leukemia. But now he was nearing the end of his days and he wasn't able to travel back. He wasn't healthy enough to go back to Michigan. And he had just become engaged and his fiance was here and they were again without resources. And the hospital asked if we could help. And we did. We took this young man and, uh, and his fiance who stayed with us. And then eventually this young man's parents from Michigan made their way here and they stayed with us. And we fed, clothed, housed, and loved this young man to death in a way that because his needs were so great, skilled nursing needs, he could never have received it in a nursing home setting and the hospitals just weren't able to, to keep him. So for you, yeah, and those for things staff. inspire me. Yeah. For you and for your staff, um, what you do is you give hope in uh, difficult circumstances. So you've got to have hope in order to give hope. So how, how do you do that? How do you and your uh, colleagues and the volunteers, um, what, what brings hope in the face of death? Well, you know, for me, I have a very clear vision of that. I, I feel at this time of my life, I'm 75 years old, that I am doing the will of God for my life. Matthew 25 is clearly what drives me. When, when Jesus is talking to his disciples and reminding them that when he was hungry, thirsty, naked, stranger, in prison, and sick, that... Uh, his disciples cared for them. And of course, you know the story that he said, well, when when did this all happen? And he said, reminded them that whatsoever you do to the least of my brethren, that you do unto me. So I'm feeling with every patient we have that I, I look at them through, through Jesus' eyes and I see them that way and, and believe that we are providing a ministry here of, of healing the body, soul, and spirit of these patients. And it's, it's a great feel. I feel a lot of peace and comfort uh, being at the bedside of these patients that are about to see their Lord and Savior. It's an amazing thing. We've had 4,448 people die here, and I've been with almost every one of them. Our guest on today's conversation has been Robert Solheim, director of Little Hospice. I'm Leith Anderson, and on behalf of us all, very special thanks to Bob. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we connect and represent evangelical Christians in the United States. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please follow along on Twitter at NAEvangelicals or on our Facebook page for the National Association of Evangelicals. And sign up for our email list when you visit our website at nae.net.